Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. A very happy Advent to you all. It's good to see you. This is our, as a church, this is, I mean, capital C church. What you got there, Johnny? <laughs> Christmas music? You're just so hyped for it. Um, you know, at, at, as Christians, this is the beginning of our year because we start telling the story of uh, the coming of Christ. That's what Advent means. Advent means the coming or the, and the arrival um, of God with us. And so Advent is a time of anticipation. Um, it's a time of expectation, learning an expectant hope. Um, but the strange thing is for us as Christians where, you know, in the Old Testament, which is what we tend to focus on in Advent, they're kind of, they're waiting with um, almost like an anxious anticipation. Is God who God says God is? Is God really good? Is God going to come through for us? We have this confidence because we kind of know what God is like. Um, we know what God sounds like and we know what God looks like because we have Jesus. But our anticipation then is a very curious one because as we remember the first coming of Christ, we live in between these two moments of history where we're anticipating the second coming, we're anticipating God bringing everything into fullness in Christ. Um, we have confidence in who God is, but we're still kind of left in this in-between. And for a lot of us, for many of you, I know you feel that sense of tension, like you know the story, you know how it's going to end. But, you know, in a moment like today, we're like, ah, but how, how's he going to do it? How is he going to get us there? And I think that's why Advent is so beautiful is because it, it reorients us back to this posture of anticipation, of expectation uh, for the coming of the king. And so as Christians, we read the Old Testament through the lens of the coming of Christ to understand this is what God's salvation project for the whole world uh, has really looked like. So um, today we're going to be looking at the story of Adam and Eve, which again, on, on first glance, it's like, oh, why aren't we doing like, uh, you know, the, the shepherds and the wise men and the angels and all that. We'll get, we'll get to all that fun stuff later. But I really felt like the Lord was inviting us to hone in on kind of key moments in the Old Testament and how they live into this, this anticipation or this leaning towards the future. And so we're going to start in the beginning today. And this is kind of where I want us to go. That through, at, through the old Adam, we fell subject to sin and death because we try to make ourselves into gods. We await the coming of the new Adam who brings us new life. And so we're going to be looking at uh, the story of Genesis. So I'm going to pray uh, and we'll get right into this. So Heavenly Father, um, we speak your name, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, I pray that that truth. That would be the realest thing that we know about you in this season. That you are with each one of us. That you are for each of us, even when we don't believe that, especially when we don't feel it. May we learn to take by faith this truth that goes beyond our feelings, 
goes beyond our personal histories to recognize that you are the God who is with us, who turns curses into blessings. And I pray, Lord, in this season that you would continually reorient us back to why we're here in the first place. That these next few weeks are a precious opportunity to recenter on you, to begin telling your story all over again so it interprets who we are, who you've called us to be, and what you've called us to do. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be looking at the story of Adam and Eve today. And I think for some people, the, the conversation around, like, did this actually happen is a vaguely interesting one. I'm not interested in that conversation anymore. Um, I don't think it really goes anywhere. And a lot of times when we read, especially like Old, Old, Old Testament, like those first couple chapters of Genesis, and what their driving purpose is like, did this actually happen? We can actually miss what it's really there to tell us, right? That's what happens a lot of times in these conversations about literalism and allegory. And we, we kind of pause it over the scriptures these kind of like 18th, 19th, 20th century conversations, and we miss the point of what we're supposed to be doing in those stories in the first place. Really, what are they there for? So we're going to be reading this story as kind of a theodrama that in a way, the story of Adam and Eve is the story of all, of all of us. Like the story of Adam and Eve is your story, and it's mine as well. And when we begin to look at these deep patterns that are written into the story, I think that's what really makes it divine. That's what makes it divinely inspired, um, is that it awakens us up to the reality of what it means to be a human so that we can be further opened up to allow God to speak into our story. So I'm going to read first from uh, Genesis 2, beginning in the eighth verse. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We have a choice to find life in intimacy with God or to decide for ourselves what we think is good and evil. Several weeks ago, we talked about creation. And we said humanity is kind of this, this marriage of spirit and dust, that God gathers the, the dust of the ground, the humus, this is where we get the word Adam, um, and he breathes into it his spirit. And so humanity kind of sits at the intersection of the spiritual world and the material world. We're this bridge from creator to creation. And when we understand that, we understand what our divine vocation is, why God created us and placed us into the garden. So several weeks ago, we talked about this divine vocation that we've been called to, to cultivate the garden. 
when it says to subdue creation, it means uh, to rule over it, but to rule over it benevolently, um, to see it flourish. Because the more that creation flourishes, the more uh, glory is given to God. And what we find in this fascinating theodrama is that Adam, this first person, has this complete access to God. Like you and I, there's a veil. It's hard for us to perceive God, but for Adam, God was right there. God was always present to him. He was gifted this complete access to God, but he was placed in this garden to take care of it. And there's this, this, this recognition there, even in the, that kind of the first verse that I read, um, that we were placed there to make sure that um, the garden thrives. And so it says, um, Hold on, I'm bringing it up here. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So here, work is a good thing. We were created to work. We were created to cultivate this garden. So what that speaks to us is that, yes, we have this access to God, but it's something that we have to continue to cultivate. That a lot of times for you and I, our faith is perceived more like um, a bookshelf than it is a garden. We have to get all of our little doctrinal theses just in the right place on the shelf. Once we've got everything in place, we step back and we hope to God nobody touches it and potentially ruins it. How many of you, like, that was the way you grew up, your household was like, it was more like a museum and you weren't allowed to actually touch anything you owned? Or your grandparents maybe? Did anybody have that grandparent, right? Like, that's how we treat our faith a lot of times. It's like, here's all my doctrines, and here's all my practices, and they're on the shelf, and I got them in just the right order, and now I step back and I say, ah, there it is. The problem is that requires no further cultivation. It kind of becomes this one and done interaction with our faith. But when we recognize at the very beginning, we were called to work the ground, to work the soil, to cultivate this intimacy with God so that we can cultivate um, our purpose, we begin to recognize, okay, so there's this ongoing process of engagement. There's a sensitivity that we have to our environment, to what's happening within us, to what God's calling us to do from season to season that becomes the work of our lives. And as I was meditating on this, I'm considering there's these two trees that God places in this first garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I've spoken about this before, uh, that it seems rather cruel to, to place one tree in the garden where God says, you can eat of any tree except for this one. Do not eat of that tree. But as, as I've meditated on this passage, I've realized in order for us to choose, <coughs> excuse me, in order for us to choose love, we have to be able to choose not love. Where there is no choice, there is no love. And God did not desire automatons that would just go along with whatever God says and they just kind of obey him. We're not created to be some sort of spiritual robot. But in fact, we have to be presented with the choice for life or the choice of knowledge of good and evil in order to truly choose into loving God and therefore being who we're created to be. So I was thinking about kind of the, the challenge, the choices between these two trees that are technically available to us um, but we're called to choose one over the other. And I think the tree of life, to pursue life as our primary value, um, is to trust that God is really the source of all life. 
I think that's what the tree of life is there to say, is I put my primary emphasis of my life, all my energy is collected up behind a pursuing intimacy with God. And so as meaning creatures, we look outward, we look to God to give us a sense of meaning, to tell us who we are, to tell us what it is that we're to do with our lives. And so then when we look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which in and of itself doesn't seem like a wrong thing, shouldn't we all know what is good and what is evil, right? Like this is why it seems so strange. But I think what the, what the, what the writer of these, this story is telling us is that when we take our eyes off of God as our highest ideal, and we begin to look inward to discern what we think is good and evil, we take upon ourselves that burden um, to define meaning and desire for ourselves. We become self-reliant. And the problem here is then we all start to relativize what we think is good and what we think is evil. We take upon ourselves that burden. And I think that is really where humanity kind of begins to veer off course. I think one of the, you know, the most nefarious revelations that we can have in life is realizing that people that we deem as evil are probably actually very motivated by what they think is the right thing. Is that right? It's not that they think they're evil. I mean, this is the, the best Disney villains are all this way, right? They think they're doing the right thing. The most compelling villains in a lot of our stories, they think they're justified in what they're doing because they're looking for what they perceive to be the greater good or what they perceive to be um, the highest heaven. And so we're presented with this choice. Do you pursue life in God as your primary motivation where good and evil are almost byproducts of intimacy with God? It's not that good and evil don't exist. It's that those are learned things that come on the other side of knowing God? Or do we take upon ourselves that burden to define what we think is good and evil? And then I was thinking about this idea of fruit. What is the significance of it being fruit um, that we're called to eat? Because the Lord God says, you can eat of any fruit in the garden except for the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because a lot of times, we st again, we still have this mentality when it comes to our faith that the story should go something like this. Here's the contract that I would like for you to sign to be able to rent this house, right? It's kind of like a contractual agreement we have with God. Adam is supposed to sign on the line, and now he has a relationship with God that's defined by a contract, and now he has to live according to the properties of that contract. If he breaks any of the properties, he's broken the contract, and then he's going to be tossed out, right? And a contract is something that you sign, you know, annually for your house or, or you know, one time if you're buying a home or whatever it might be, um, that the, in, the indication is that you, there's this ongoing agreement that you're just going to be living according to the principles of that contract. But that's not what we find is the core symbol in this story. We find that it's fruit. So I was kind of thinking about that as, as I was munching on a, we had a, we bought a persimmon yesterday. Has anybody had a persimmon? They're rad. They're great. It's like an Eastern apple, I guess is what it's called. So why fruit? Why, why is fruit the central premise of this story? And I realized, oh, in a quite literal sense, we become what we eat, right? Whatever we take into ourselves becomes part of who we are. So to eat fruit symbolically um, indicates worship. We ascribe worth to the source of the, the fruit that we're meant to cultivate that we take into ourselves on an ongoing basis. We have, as human beings, we're created as necessary beings, so we have to continue to eat. And whatever we eat over time shapes who we are. We quite literally are what we eat. And so 
the, the deeper symbol here is of worship as a kind of sustenance that feeds us. It feeds us on the deepest level, and that sustenance also transforms us to become more like whatever the tree is um, that we're ascribing worth to. So the more that we eat of the fruit of the tree of life, the more we find life. The more we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the more we experience that burden of having to determine by ourselves what we think is right and wrong, what we think is good and evil. And at the end of this passage, there's this rather fascinating little line. Um, if you know the story continues on, Adam is lonely, God creates Eve, and it says they were naked and they felt no shame. And I was thinking about that. And I realized Adam and Eve were, were never self-conscious in the presence of God and of one another. They were not self-conscious. They didn't look down and perceive that something was missing. So as I was thinking about that, I'm considering, okay, so when we ascribe worth to our highest ideal in God, when we choose to eat the fruit of the tree of life, we are, we are unself-conscious. We do not believe that we're missing anything. We're whole, we're complete, we're okay just the way that we are. We're able to be fully in the presence of God without shame. We're able to be in the presence of one another without shame or without guilt. You see the profundity of this story, if we just make it about did this happen or did this not happen, we miss the riches of what this story is actually here to tell us. And so the, the story carries on and it begins to take a turn here in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so if we're presented with this choice to find intimacy with life in God or to decide for ourselves what we think is good and evil, we need that choice in order to truly love or else we're just kind of going along with the script. We see entering into the story um, this serpent, this embodiment of uh, confusion and deceit. And so the serpent's lies tempt us to believe that God is not for us. So we should take matters into our own hands. I love that, you know, you maybe even, you miss it at first, but like, let's revisit real quick the question that the serpent asks. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, did God say that? No, not at all. God didn't say you must not eat of any tree. He just said, you can eat of any tree, just not this one. So already, this serpent is sowing confusion and coming in and kind of getting them to question even the basic premise of Adam and Eve's relationship with God. 
So the serpent, you know, and, and in some traditions, we kind of ascribe this to being Satan kind of putting on the skin of the serpent. That's not necessarily part of the story, but we can see this, this progression there. We see this serpent as first confusing, kind of setting up the wrong premises to the question itself, and then beginning to deceive. And so Eve's response is like, well, no, we were told we can eat of any tree except for this one because we'll die. Says, oh, no, 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 you, you certainly won't die. In fact, not only will you not die, you're going to become like God. You're going to know good and evil. And so he plants these lies in Eve's heart. And the deepest question I think that the serpent is challenging is to say, is God really good though? Like if God were to prohibit something in your life, doesn't that mean that he's not really good? Now, now maybe in your elevated adult life, you don't believe in that. But at one point you were three years old and at one point there was prohibition put on your life and your parents were the embodiment of evil on this planet. How dare they tell you no? You know? And that's what happens to us is we perceive because we're told God loves us, but then God gives us prohibitions and we say, oh, surely God does not love me. Because if God loved me, God would let me do whatever it is that I wanted to do in my life. Because I can do anything I want, and it's okay because God still loves me, which is technically true. But it's a rather sad way to live our lives. And so the serpent begins to kind of sow these seeds of suspicion in Eve's heart to say, is God really good? Is God really just in the sense of the way God orders the world, is that really the way that it's meant to be? Is he really kind? Is God really looking out for you in your best interests? Because maybe you would be better off without him. Because I think this is, this is what's so deceptive about the lies of the serpent in this story and the lies of the serpents in our own heart. We are meant to be like God. This is what it says in Genesis 1. Let us make humanity in our own image. We are meant to become like God. That's the whole journey of the human narrative. But the lie comes in where the serpent says, you can achieve what God desires for your life without having to do it alongside of God. You can circumnavigate God's uh, plan for you to become like him. And you can just do it on your own. And so it's kind of the, re the reward of the way we're created without the, the place of intimacy or having to, to cultivate that life alongside of God. And so what happens? We believe these lies that maybe God isn't really good. Maybe we can kind of circumnavigate God's way of doing things and take matters into our own hands. And we make ourselves God's. We decide to put ourselves in the central place of our understanding of history or our understanding of what the meaning is for our own lives. And we decide that we're going to be the arbiters of what we think is good and evil, but it's all based on our own egos. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how much energy I exert rationalizing the decisions that I desire to make based on what I want to be good and what I want to be evil. Right? How many, I mean, I, I assume I'm not the only one, right? We spend so much time rationalizing the decisions that we want to make and the lives that we want to live. And we'll tag on to that this kind of cheap grace from God that God loves us no matter what we do, which again is technically true. 
But really what we're saying is I'm actually, I'm the God of my own life. I get to decide who I am, what I do. I'm going to find those little loopholes uh, to justify the decisions that I'm making so that I can become like God, so I can be God-like. And so it's a shortcut to perfection, but it's divorced from intimacy because we don't really believe, and I think this is the big thing, guys, we don't really believe God's that good. And we don't really believe that God's ways are better than our ways. We'll take matters into our own hands. Thank you very much. And even this we see in Eve where it says, she, she perceived the fruit and saw that it was pleasing to, to the eye. That this temptation to take life into our own hands, um, what Nietzsche called this will to power, right? Um, or what Freud called the pleasure principle. Like we, we, we decide like, it's, it's pleasing, it's beautiful. We're going to take life into our own hands. Life is what you make it, after all, say all of our pillows and our coffee mugs. Um, you know, make the most of it, all this kind of BS. Like, the temptation to take life into our own hands starts with that deceptive lie at the core of all life, which is to say God is not really that good. And what happens? They, they eat. Oh, and by the way, it says Adam was with her, so it kind of Adam was present in this story the whole time. I, don't, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but I know some of you grew up with a very misogynistic reading of this story that's like wagging the finger at Eve and all this. He's just sitting there with like his hands in his like non-pockets, like, you know? Um, the whole thing's happening. What, what his, what's he supposed to be doing this whole time? He should probably be like, you know, I don't know, co-laboring with his wife maybe to make decisions together and be more assertive and like combat the lies of the enemy, but that's not what happens. Um, that's a free marriage tip for you guys there. So what happens is they eat, and then it says their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. What happened? Were they blind before? No, I think that their eyes were opened to the spiritual truths of who God had created them to be. But now their eyes were opened in a radically different way. And they moved from becoming beautifully unselfconscious to becoming this burdensomely self-conscious. They look down, they feel exposed, all of a sudden they realize. I've talked about this, like the difference in like, the, between, you know, it, the line between art and pornography admittedly is kind of hard to, it's like, um, what's her name, Tipper Gore said in like 1989, like you know it when you see it when it comes to porn, which, okay, fine. Um, art, you guys, sorry, we're probably going off on tangents here, but again, I'm an art teacher, so this is what I do. Like in, in art, um, a nude is a celebration of the human form unencumbered by clothing. And in pornography, there's a nakedness that invites a sense of shame because you shouldn't have access to that. That's the difference, right, between nudity and nakedness, kind of, in our culture. Um, and so that's what happens to them. They're nude. There's, it's like we're unashamed. There's nothing missing. We're okay. This is the way we were created to be. And then their eyes are open, and all of a sudden, they're naked. And they feel like, I'm, I'm inadequate. I'm not the way that I'm meant to be. I shouldn't be perceived like this. And so what happens is that they hide from the source of all life. And this is what happens when we have that burden of determining what we think is good and evil. We buckle under the pressure, and we realize how inadequate we are. 
and the shame and guilt in our lives is because we've taken upon ourselves that, that, um, that role of God to determine good and evil, right and wrong. We've brought it upon ourselves. We collapse under the pressure, and we feel like the need to hide or to compensate. The story goes on in verse 8. Then the, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God asks these three profound questions of Adam and Eve that by extension are questions that God asks all of us. Number one, where are you? Where are you in relation to me? That question of, of, of location, of geographic location, it's a question of intimacy. Where are we? I'm making a move towards you. That God comes and he walks through the garden in the cool of the day. There's some beautiful paintings throughout history that kind of show this, this Christ-like form walking through the garden looking to spend time with his companions. And maybe we can read into this that God knows where they are, um, but he needs them to know that they're not. I think that's fine. I like the idea that God is honestly looking for them. He's going, where are you? Like, this isn't what we do. We don't hide from each other. Like, where are you? I miss you. Now, wouldn't that be something? If where you and I are and God's going, but, but where are you? Like, I miss you. I want to spend time with you. And, 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 and we've for so long been in this place of this ability to be with each other without any shame or guilt. And now it feels like you're hiding from me. You're compensating for something. The first question of intimacy, where are you in relationship to me? And then Adam, he says, you know, we perceived that we were naked and we hid. But before that, he says, what does he say? He says, the woman you gave me, gave me this fruit, and I was deceived. So again, boys, let's, let's have a conversation here real quick, okay? 
Mm. It's so easy for us, for men. And again, this is all, this is all stereotypical. I, I'm a very wary whenever you try to do gender-assigned things with this story, because it's so culturally bound, and you get into these like cuckoo places. But when men are divorced from intimacy with God, we tend to become rather, uh, let's say, inert. The left side of the periodic table of the elements. We're kind of stable, I guess. Um, but there's not a lot of assertiveness there. Okay? Again, this is the stereotypical reading of the story. And so what, is, what does Adam do when he's asked this question, where are you? He says, well, the woman that you gave me. And so he kind of makes a double blame for why things are wrong in his life. He blames the woman, but he really blames God. He says, well, you gave me this woman to be my companion, and then she led me astray. So it's kind of your fault. So how often in our lives, this, again, we can talk about men, we can talk about all of us, how often when God asks, where are you? Do we kind of blame God for why we lack intimacy? It's like, well, you gave me this stuff in life, like you gave me a good job, or you gave me health, or you put me in this place, or you gave me this relationship, or whatever. And then that thing didn't turn out to be what I thought it was going to be. And so it's kind of your fault that I'm not showing up. It's your fault that I feel ashamed. You see? And I love, oh, I, I just feel the heartbreak in this question when, when God asks it of Adam and Eve. He says, who told you you were naked? Who told, like, where did you get this idea that you're not enough? Because is that not what happens? Their eyes are open. They feel inadequate. They cover, like, they literally cover over their preciousness. They create, they invent clothes for themselves to hide. They need a barrier between themselves and each other. They need a barrier between themselves and God to kind of protect what they feel is not enough. And God, you can just hear the heartbreak in his, when, it, and when, he, when he speaks to us and he says, who told you you were naked? It's a question of identity. Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that you weren't acceptable in my sight? Who told you you weren't able to come to me when things go wrong, when you feel confused, when you feel this temptation? And so then God turns to Eve <clears throat> and asks this question. What is this that you have done? And again, if we're going to make like gross gender-based oversimplification here, there is a storyline in human relationships that is not all the time, but where there is passivity in the masculine position in a role that it gets compensated in the feminine. And so women feel this need that they need to rise up and, and do something, get the thing to move forward. But it, what we'll find out is the curse is it brings this kind of enmity between uh, the genders, between the sexes. And so God asks Eve, what is this that you've done? So here we have the place of action. And our actions radiate from who we believe that we are, right? And who we believe we are radiates from where we find our source. So you can see when we divorce ourselves from the source of the tree of life, the source 
that God, like intimacy is our primary understanding of our value, that it's not up to us to determine what is good and evil and then to make an action plan. We see here, because Adam and Eve have divorced themselves from the source of all life, that is God, because they've taken upon themselves the burden of good and evil, now the actions radiate from that place. You and I, we do what we do because of what we believe about ourselves and because of who we believe we are in the eyes of God, in the eyes of one another. And when there's shame, when there is guilt, when there are feelings of inadequacy, it causes us to do all sorts of things to try to compensate. And so the question that God asks, what is this you have done, is really a question about how did it get to this point where you've walked away from me so profoundly and not believing you are who I created you to be and being enough. So these actions stem from this deception that the serpent lays down. Is God really good, though? Are God's ways really the best ways? And we find these three curses. Now, perhaps what, you know, you heard in, about this story growing up is like, God pronounces curses in the same way that Zeus pronounces curses in the, in the Greco-Roman world. That you do something wrong, and then there's, it's, you know, there's a punishment that's like decreed against you, and you're going to get kind of slapped aside by the gods. I think in the biblical narrative, it's more accurate to say, when God speaks these curses, it's not a pronouncement, it's a lamentation. Okay? God's not saying, I'm going to make this thing happen to you now because you broke the rules. That, that tends to come more from our Greco-Roman inheritance. What God is saying is, I'm so heartbroken because of what you've chosen. I see the patterns that are about to take place in your life, and this is what's going to happen because of the decisions you've made. We see this in John chapter 3. It says, you know, uh, for God so loved the world um, that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not die but have eternal life. God did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world already stood condemned, right? Which means when we chose out of intimacy with God, we already chose death. We were already sent into this spiral because we were making ourselves gods. And so when God pronounces these curses, it's not an indictment, it's a lamentation. And when he looks at the serpent, we find here the first prophecy of the Messiah. He says that there will be enmity, enmity between your children and the woman's children. And the, the children of Eve will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, is that not a profound way of understanding the crucifixion? That, that Jesus, as the, the, the son, like the son of man, right? This is what we call him in scripture, the son of man. The, the son of Eve crushes the head of the serpent, but the serpent also strikes his heel. For Eve, this pronouncement of a curse is pain and desire. Now, again, we, we have to, there's a way you can kind of dismiss this story and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the Bible's, uh, you know, putting the, the pain of childbirth and, and the feminine cycle on this one sin. That just, and, and I think that, yeah, I think that that's pretty stupid. Just my opinion. I do think there's a profundity here when we read, uh, like, take the Bible seriously and we see the deep reading of what this means. To bring... To bring children into a world of uncertainty where men become gods is such a mix of joy and pain. The risk, like those of you who are parents, you're incredibly brave for bringing children into this world. And that mix 
of joy and fear of what will happen to your children in a world that is not guided by God, at least not in the ways that we can see, I think that perhaps that gets a little bit closer to what the scripture is telling us. Like any of you that have children, you know that pain of something that is so close to your heart being birthed out into a world of uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen to them. And this little line about <clears throat> your desire will be for your husband, there's actually discrepancy on how to interpret that. Some people say that it will be kind of like an unhealthy uh, attachment or, or lust for your husband. Um, some interpretations actually say it's your desire to control your husband and he will control you, okay? That's the other way of reading it. Either way, what we see is that the curse pronounced like lamented over Eve because of the decisions that she has made is like there's going to be so much strife in in having children like that that loss of innocence that comes with having children and there's going to be enmity within your relationships specifically within the marital relationship and I think this is very important to recognize that you know sometimes where it's like you know the the kind of hierarchy of like spiritual awesomeness is like God the Father God the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, men, women, handicapped people, children, Democrats, you know, like <laughs> that kind of hierarchy. That's, that's, actually, uh, that's actually a heresy, even though it gets taught in church a lot. The lament of God is like what was meant to be this balanced relationship between men and women has become imbalanced. And whenever there's imbalance, there's tension. And the whole project, if you read like, the way that God speaks of the relationship between men and women throughout all of Scripture, is how do we work to bring back this balance where there's an equal value, there's a preciousness for the other, there's a sacrificial form of love rather than this kind of hierarchical top-down form of love. Um, the curse, the lament of God when he perceives the relationship between Adam and Eve is an imbalance. That's not God's intention for these relationships. And then finally, the, the, the pronouncement over Adam. Number one, nature itself will be in flux because of the relation, like the decisions that human beings have made uh, to, to be their own gods. Um, if you want indication that humanity as a whole have deviated from how God has created us according to Genesis, you look to nature and is nature in flux. There was, I think now the fourth time this week that orcas have sunk a yacht Okay, that was this week. Like, they're, they're actually teaching each other how to sink our boats, which is pretty wild. Um, but when we, when we look, if we hear, you know, in Romans, um, Paul says, like, all creation has been groaning in expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. When we see nature itself groaning, we know that we are not where we're meant to be. Because he says, cursed is the land. Like, the land is going to cry out for human beings to reclaim their place of bringing a sense of flourishing and diversity. What we see here, the curse over Adam, is work becomes toil. Sometimes you hear it as that work is the curse. That's not true because we saw that in the previous chapter that God says, I want you to go and I want you to work the soil. But there's a work there that's joyful. But that work becomes toil. And it means that so much of our energy seems to come to very little. 
And that's what God is saying to Adam and by extension to all of us is when you, you, you step out, when you decide to become your own God, craft your own world, so much of the work you're going to do seems like it produces very little actual fruit and it begins to seem meaningless. And how much in our modern life, like we're putting our hands to things that mean nothing. We're not, you know, we're not making the world a better place. In fact, some of us, if we're honest, we have jobs that are making a world that we ourselves don't want to live in. Because that's just the way it is. We just have to, well, that's just the way it is. I don't like what I do. I don't like where my effort goes, but I just gotta, you know, you gotta make a buck somehow. And we're killing our souls because we're not doing the kind of good work that God has called us to that produces fruit. But we're creating, we're actively participating in meaninglessness. And ultimately, this leads to death. And if you know how the story goes on from Adam and Eve, you know that it just spirals out of control very quickly. And every story, I love, this is the brilliance of the way that Genesis is written. Every generation, it just says they move east. We have the story of Cain and Abel, the first children that are born. And automatically, what happens? We have jealousy and then murder. In the first generation, we have jealousy and then murder. And it says then they move east. And then... We have the story of Noah and the flood. It says, you know, the, the, all of humanity was so corrupt, like violence was just permeating through all of humanity that God lamented what had happened and he seen, sends this flood and he rescues Noah and it says they moved east. And then we find the story of the Tower of Babel where humanity bands together and says, let us make a tower that we can pierce the heavens, that we can get to God by our own merit. See, they're still doing the same thing. We still, yes, we're called to be gods, but let's just do it ourselves. That just seems just as good as actually having any semblance of relationship with the creator God, and they move east, and it's called this place called Shinar, which we would say is kind of modern-day Iraq, and Shinar or Babel, Babylon. It's like you can't get any farther away from God's good graces than there. So later on, when Israel goes into exile in Babylon, symbolically what they're saying is, man, you can't get any farther from God than where we are now. So the invitation is always, how do we return? How do we turn back? How do we come back to Eden? Because the fear of inadequacy, the shame, the guilt that's placed upon us because we have taken upon ourselves the burden to determine good and evil leads to inevitable violence and we cut ourselves down and we destroy our relationships, we destroy the earth. This all goes hand in hand. And so what is God going to do to stop the cycle? Feeling hopeless left yet? Now you're ready for Christmas. <laughs> this is what Paul tells us. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. In the advent of the Messiah, the serpent's head is crushed, sin and death are destroyed, and the children of Adam are gifted new life. We live in, you know, Advent can be a very heavy season because we're recognizing how just dastardly it is that this goes so wrong so quickly that we begin to recognize our need for a Messiah. But it's beautiful to recognize that when we see what went wrong in the old Adam, the invitation to life in the new Adam, is that God didn't simply want to remake humanity in the image of the old Adam. Like, let's just get back to square one. This isn't about just remaking what was broken, but it's to create an even better humanity in Jesus. Because you and I have been given this spirit of Christ to, to bring us back into intimacy with God, that we choose the tree of life over the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where we choose to recognize who we are in him so that we can be unashamed. We can be unselfconscious. We know that we are enough in him. We know that we are favored. We know that we are beloved. And then our actions that flow from that place are no longer fearful and violent and, and, and self-promoting, but we do genuinely become like God. We become generous. We become kind become just. What Paul sees in this parallel between Adam and Christ is that death and life are not simply equal and opposite. There is no balance between death and life. But through the coming of the Messiah, death itself is overcome. And then we're given this gift of belovedness, abundant life, and co-reigning status with Christ. So I want to invite you to stand with me and I'm going to pray. as we move through the Advent season, as we move into the Christmas story, we want to live in that creative anticipation. And maybe you're in a place right now where there's a lot in that story of Adam and Eve that's your story. You're, going, you're thinking, wow, I have chosen the knowledge of good and evil. I've chosen to make myself my own God. I've perhaps even propped that up with the cheap grace of God. I have chosen to believe the lies of the serpent are meant to confuse me and then deceive me into believing I can just take matters into my own hands, make my own choices. And out of that, I've hurt myself. I've hurt other people. I've contributed to these cycles of violence in this world. I've contributed to a sense of meaninglessness in the human family. And I need to come home to God revealed in Christ. That's the challenge for all of us in this Advent season. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that like our forebears, Adam and Eve, we have made choices to walk away. We've made choices to take matters into our own hands, but in doing so, we have hidden from you because we are ashamed. 
because we feel inadequate, because we feel guilty. We feel overwhelmed by all the things that we have done wrong. And still, you call us to return to you. You call us to step out of the darkness and into the light so that you can see where we are, so you can see us she's been led astray so she has led astray and through that she becomes the mother of all of us that we all have wandered away we've all hidden from God because we don't believe that we're enough we've hurt other people um, as we have been deceived so we have deceived and I love in this you can just feel this tenderness as Mary is saying within me within me is the redemption of your story I'm carrying the healing power within me. For everything that went wrong in your generation, everything will be made right. And that's what we get to anticipate in Advent. I want us to feel that squeeze, that, oh, that need, so that when Christmas comes and we celebrate the final coming of Jesus, the Messiah, understand the profundity of what that really means not just for us but for the whole world and so for my challenge for you on this first day of Advent is do not let this season pass you by please for the love of God don't make this about an hour and a half on Sundays don't as, as much as I love holiday parties and gifts and year-end lists all, all that's great there's nothing wrong with any of it. But the moment it distracts us from, are you ready for it? Jesus is the reason for the season. The moment that we're distracted, we miss it. And we miss the beauty of encountering Christ anew. And so take time today to, to sit with the Lord and say, what would this next 40 days look like? Is there a devotional that you can lean into? Is there a prayer?
prayer practice that you can participate in in this season to keep at the forefront of your mind this redemption of the whole human family. Because I want us to arrive at Easter and into the new year with that revelation that God is good. He is the source of all life. So if you put your hands in front of you in a posture to receive, um, I'll send you forth with this blessing. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.